Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are truly thankful for the privilege that we have to enter into your presence to worship you in truth and spirit this day. We thank you, Father, that we have been able to sing praises unto your name, to pray to you knowing that you hear our prayers and that you answer our prayers according to your will. We thank you that you are sovereign over all creation, that you know our every thought, that you are almighty and able to bring about your will. We thank you, Father, that you have ordained a day of worship, a day that we are to give to you, a day that we are to rest spiritually and receive the strength that we need so that we might live in this world of darkness and sin. We thank you, Father, that you have sent your Son who paid the price for our sins and earned us the righteousness that we could not earn so that we might have salvation and be able to know you and worship you and serve you. How we pray, Father, that you would, by your Spirit and your Word, teach us your truth this day as we continue to think upon this prayer that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ gave us, I pray that we would have greater understanding of this privilege, that we would have greater understanding who you are as our Heavenly Father. And Father, that we might realize, as we just sang, that we need Thee every hour. Forgive us for the times that we think that we can live our lives without thinking of you. For those times when we shut you out of our life and try to live in our own strength, cause us to think of the grace, the amazing grace that you have bestowed upon us because of the work of Christ. Cause us to look to Christ each and every day for the strength that we need to persevere in this life. Cause us to remember that you have said that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Teach us these truths this day, Father. We pray for our sister churches throughout the world who proclaim the gospel that many would come into your kingdom, Father. That many would come to know you as their heavenly Father because they come to know Christ as their Savior. How we pray, Father, that you would bring many into your kingdom, whether it be here or elsewhere. We pray, Father, that you would also be with those unable to be with us this day. You know their reasons and their needs, and we pray that you minister to them. And, Father, that you would bring them back to us quickly. We continue to cry out to you, Father, to do that which only you can do, of saving sinners and sanctifying your saints. And this we pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. If you would, take your Bibles and turn again with me to Matthew chapter 6. And we will again read the passage that we read last week. Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. Matthew 6, beginning with verse 9. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Last week, we looked at the introduction to this particular prayer, which is a model prayer. You could say in one sense that it is an outline that we are to put meat on. This prayer guides us in how we are to come to our Heavenly Father and pray to Him to know and be assured that He not only hears our prayers, but that He will answer our prayers. Now, today I want us to see that Jesus instructs us how We are to approach God. For this prayer begins with a direct address to God. 
as we know from our youngest age, it says there, our Father in heaven. Now, it's easy for us to quickly skip over this first phrase that Jesus gives here, not giving very much thought to it. I encourage you not to do that. This is so important. And that's why we're going to spend an entire sermon on this particular phrase, because it is of great importance. Some of you have heard my good friend Richard Smith preach, and he shared with me that years ago he would take this prayer and he would take each phrase, and after he would teach on each phrase, he would ask his people, pray according to that one phrase. I want you to spend time just praying according to that one phrase and what it means. And he said, to this day, I have not been able to find people to be able to do that. So therefore, I want to encourage you to learn how to pray according to simply this very first praise that we are given by Jesus, our Father in heaven. We must acknowledge God as the only true God and the relationship that He has with us. Do you realize that prayer is theologically deep? It's a very deep experience that we have theologically. When we pray, we must not only believe that God exists, and hopefully you believe that, that God exists, but we must also have faith in God's attributes. He is sovereign. His omnipotent, His omnipresent, and I could name all of them. And by the way, another commercial, and this is the last week, I think that I'll make that commercial. We still have 20 books by Arthur Pink on the attributes of God in the book room, and it's yours free. So if you'd like to pick up one and study the attributes of God, it will encourage you in your prayer life. And we all need encouragement in our prayer life. So I encourage you to pick up that book and dwell upon who God is. Dwell upon His attributes. And if you dwell upon His attributes, it will lead you naturally into praying God more for in a more fervent way. Now, as I pray and we study this Lord's Prayer, I hope that we will grasp how personal God is. God is not someone that is far out there that we have no knowledge of. God is personal to us. And that's one of the points that Jesus is trying to make to us in that first word, our. It indicates this. We pray not simply as a saved individual, but as a part of the body of Christ. Because we are in Christ, in the beloved We are members of a family, God's family, and He is our Father, corporately. We have prayed this morning, our Father, which art in heaven. So when we pray, we confess that He is not only my Father, but the Father of every single true believer. Every single person who has been born again can say that He is His Father. Father. He's our Father. And that indicates that covenantal relationship. This rules out the common idea among liberals that Jesus is referring only to the fatherhood of God over all men by virtue of creation. That is not the case. We understand that Jesus is revealing a relationship, a deep relationship, a deep love that God has for you and for me. If we are His children, if we have been elected and we've come to know that through this personal relationship with Him, we know that Jesus is speaking to us about the fatherhood of God. Now, we also understand that these two words that are very important. Our Father reveals word of faith. Now, of course, don't allow your charismatic groups to steal us from this this word of faith. James speaks about words of faith, presupposing that God sent His only begotten Son into this world for us to save us. And this reveals that He has a special saving interest in His elect. 
Therefore, I want us to understand this fatherhood of God so that we might have a better understanding of how blessed we are. How blessed we are as God's children to be able to pray to God and see the benefits that we have as God's children. There are glorious benefits that we are able to attain. First of all, and there's only two things that we'll look at this morning, we see the privilege of addressing God as our Father. This is all of grace, an instant bonding. When we are converted, we have a father-son relationship. And prayer is one way Faith is exercised. James speaks of the prayer of faith. Without faith, there is no true prayer. So unless you're brought into relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you have no true prayer. I've emphasized that before. Only those who are born again have the opportunity to pray to God as their Heavenly Father. Without faith, there is no true prayer. As one writer said, that writer Thomas Watson, prayer is the key of heaven. Faith is the hand that turns it. He goes on and he says, In faith we come before God, our Father, with words of praise and adoration, Praising Him who is love, holiness, and all-powerful. Let that sink in just a moment. We are coming into the presence of one who is all love, holy, and all-powerful. And therefore, using the word Father describes one or all three truths. First, the Father of all men virtually by creation, and that's in Acts 17, 28. I'm not going to read these verses. You can look them up later. Second, Father, by virtue of covenant relationship, He established Isaiah 64, 8 and 9. And then, Father, by virtue of our regeneration in Christ and adopted into the spiritual family, Galatians 4, Four through seven. So all three of these truths are described when we say Father. When we pray, we must remember that the one to whom we pray is our Father. Throughout the Bible, God is given various names. Again, if you pick up the book Attributes of God, you'll see those various names that are mentioned in there. And those various names are not only mentioned in the Old Testament, we see that most of them are repeated in the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament didn't use the name Father as often as we see it in the New Testament, but it's there. Uh, I read one commentator said it's listed 14 times. I didn't take time to make sure that he was right, but uh, maybe so. But there's other instances in the Old Testament where it is assumed, the passage that we read this morning in Psalms uh, Two, I mean, 103, time and time mentions about children, God's children. Well, if it's mentioned about children, what is to be assumed? That there's a father. So therefore, a lot of times in the Old Testament, it will speak of you as my children, Israel as my children, and it's assuming that we understand that he is their father. So the Old Testament does deal with God as father. Now, of course, the Jews were very hesitant to call God their father. And it angered the religious leaders, especially the Pharisees, that Jesus called God his father. And, of course, there's other things that Jesus said about his father, and it even made them angrier to the point to where they eventually put him to death because of his relationship that he had to the Father, which they disagreed with. But not only did Jesus call uh, God his Father, he also taught the people that they too were to pray to God as their Father. Here is the example that we have it in one place. Now the Bible teaches that there's one true God who is our Father. Now this was confirmed in the fourth century 
by the council of Nicaea. Now, I want to kind of give you a history lesson on this because it's so important that we understand the council of Nicaea that met because what they were, of course, trying to teach us is what the Bible teaches about the Trinity. There was a lot of misunderstanding. There was some error that had come about. There was a heresy that had uh, come into the church and it had to be addressed. And that's why they had the council and this was one of the things that they addressed. There was the heresy of heresism. Now, we have to understand that this was dealing with the nature of Christ. Now, the council dealt with the person of Christ. It declared that the second person of the Trinity, of course, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has the same substance, the same essence as the Father. Affirming that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in being and eternity. Now, the great teacher, Athanasius, we could say was the chief champion against the heresy of Arius. Now, Arius argued that Christ was an exalted creature, but that he was less than God. Now, Athanasius stood strongly against his teachings, and rightly so, and we're, we're glad that he stood against them because that's the reason why we have the wonderful confession. We also have the confession of the church pertaining to the Trinity, and he stood fast in his profession of faith, maintaining the Trinity orthodox. Now, as a result of that, he suffered a great deal. Matter of fact, he was exiled due to his particular stance a number of times. But the content of the Athanasian Creed stresses and affirms the Trinity in which all members of the Godhead are considered uncreated, co-equal, and of the same substance. That's very important that we remember that as Christians. We believe that as Orthodox Christians, that the Godhead is uncreated, in other words, it's eternal children, co-eternal, and the same substance. So the affirmation of the Trinity is very important. Matter of fact, it's utmost important. And as the creed reaffirms, but most Christians are totally ignorant of this particular truth. Many don't even know how to explain the Trinity. Now, of course, it's difficult to explain the Trinity, but I'm just simply saying that they are co-equal, that they're eternal, everlasting, and of the same substance. Many people don't even understand that. In many groups, even famous uh, speakers today, they don't hold to the Trinity. That's the reason why we say that the Mormons are a cult. They don't believe in the Trinity. The same way with oneness Pentecostals, the Jehovah Witnesses, Christian scientists, Living Church of God, Church of God International, Universalists, uh, Christian Disciples, and a number of other smaller groups. None of these believe in the Trinity. So if you ever see these uh, names pop up or someone says they're connected to this group, you can talk to them about the Trinity and tell them this is where we differ from you and this is a heresy because you do not believe in the Trinity. Now most of the word faith movements don't believe in the theological teaching of the Trinity. There's a great deal of debate pertaining to uh, T.D. Jakes. Uh, he in one sense says that he believes in the Trinity, but there's another sense, and if you read his books, that he points out that he doesn't. Kenneth Hagen, uh, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Fred Price, these are just a few names who do not hold to the Trinity. Now you say, Pastor, you shouldn't be calling names. Oh, I'm calling names because Paul calls names, and we need to call names, and we need to warn people to stay away from these people who teach false teaching. Now, if you're listening to their prayers, they will also always pray in the name of Jesus and never use the name Father because they believe in modalism. In other words, the Father existed first and then the Son existed and now the Spirit exists. So therefore, we're not to refer to God in any manner as far as Father is concerned. So we have to be aware of that. Now back to the Nicene Creed or Nicene Council. In addressing the Trinity... 
the theologians, after they had gathered together, they had to decide that when they spoke of God, would they start with God as creator or would they start as God as father? Now, they made it very clear that the starting point is understanding God, both in proclaiming His work as well as speaking of Him in worship and in prayer. He is Father. In other words, they confirmed that God has always been Father. For we have the Trinity. If you have a son, you have to have a father. If you have a father, you have to have a son. So they both co-equal existed from all eternity. So the son is as old as the father. And the father has never been without a son. And the son has never been without a father. Now God has always existed as father. For the Trinity has always existed. And we could say in one sense, it's similar to a family in seeking to understand the Trinity. But God has has not always been creator. Even though creation was always in the mind of God, He has not always been creator. For God ordained creation, but at a certain point in eternity, God spoke the worlds into being. Now, children, what happened? When God spoke the world into being, what happened? Everything was created. The solar system was created. The galaxies were created. The universe came into being. Why? Because God spoke them as creator. But He has always been Father. For His Son, Jesus, has always existed. The great theologian Charles Hodge said this. The council, speaking of the Nicene Council, declared that our God is the eternal Son of God. That He is from eternity the Son of God. This, of course, involves the denial that He became the Son of God in time. And consequently, that the primary and essential reason for his being called son is not his miraculous birth, nor his incarnation, nor his resurrection, nor his exaltation to the right hand of God. The council decided that the word son applied to Christ is not a term of office, but of nature that it expresses the relation which the second person in the Trinity from eternity bears to the first person in the Trinity, and that the relation thus indicates is the sameness of nature, so that the sonship, in the case of Christ, includes equality with God. So in other words... In the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have the same essence, the same equality. Even though they are different persons, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus teaches us that when we begin our prayer, first think of God as your Father, our Father in heaven. Now why? Because it helps us grasp who He is and who we are. Using what we understand in normal human life. In the normal family. God birthed most of us into a family. Most of us know what it's like to have a father. And the mindset also helps us grasp what God is like. Of course, it's sad that many today are born into homes with ungodly fathers. And this, in some sense, hinders children from truly understanding how loving and how gracious God is. I'm thankful that that's not the majority case in, in our church. I'm glad that our children are born into families with fathers who love God and want them to love God. But yet God created the family... And we are to function as a family. 
Because the fatherhood of God, in some way, family life is a reflection of who God is. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 15 says, For this reason I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from who the whole family in heaven and earth is named. In other words, fatherhood, family, life comes from God. And essentially, understanding that He is the Father of, we know, all mankind, but we're talking specifically the Father of His chosen people, His children. And this is why... The most valuable thing to us is family. We love our family. We care for our family. And that's the reason why family is so precious to us here on earth, because we are created in the image of God the Father, the blessed Holy Trinity, which has always existed like a family. Now from this, we see also why Satan seeks to destroy the family. Satan hates the family. Satan wants to do everything in his power to ruin the family because it reflects the image of God. Do you think that what's happening in our day pertaining to same-sex marriage and gender and all that stuff is coincidental? No. Of course not. It comes straight from the pits of hell, folks. Now, I know one day I may be put in prison for saying that, but so be it because it's true. All of this stuff that we are seeing bombarding our children with is to seek to try to change their mindset about the family, about who they are. I mean, it's sad that they are confusing children. We need to teach them to understand that God created man and woman. And there's no way that they can change that they are who they are because God created them that way. Everyone is created in the image of God. Now, of course, this image is defaced. It's defaced by sin. But there's still enough of that image in every single human being that he has a conscious. He has a moral compass. And it presses on every single person what is right and what is wrong. Now, of course, we know lost man hardens his conscience. And he bows to his sinful nature. And he disobeys the God who created him. And all men will have to stand before this God who created them and give an account to Him at the end of time. And it will reveal whether or not you trusted in Jesus Christ or whether or not you were changed by grace. Some here may be thinking that when you die, it's over with. When you die... It just ends that this earth is gone and that's all there is. Well, if you believe that, then you've been deceived by Satan. I mean, even our children know it from the children's catechism, number 19. Have you a soul as well as a body? Children, y'all know the answer to that, right? Man has a soul that will what? Live forever. And we must teach our children that, that every one of them one day will have to give an account. Their soul lives forever. Many today are like Cain. They reject God's fatherhood. They reject His teachings. They reject His ways. But there was also a Cain, I mean an Abel, who loved God as his heavenly father and had been changed by grace, and he wanted to please God. And he sought to please God by bringing the right offering to God, the one that God had commanded him. And it revealed that grace had come into Abel's life. But we see that Cain had not experienced grace. He had an evil heart. 
And we see that that's revealed in killing his brother Abel. But yet God gave Adam and Eve another son to replace Abel, whose name was Seth, which means anointed, uh, appointed one, uh, compensation. And he likewise was privileged to experience God's grace. And throughout history, God has always had His people, even though at some times it was very small in number. I mean, look at Noah and his family. They were the only ones out of millions of people upon that earth that were brought into the ark. And all were invited, but none except his family came, and all who did not come were destroyed. So we see that throughout history, God's chosen people, His anointed, His appointed people who grasped who God was, who grasped the fatherhood of God, they experienced God's grace and therefore they loved God as their heavenly Father and therefore worshipped Him and served Him. And this leads me to my second point. God's compassionate love is demonstrated in His fatherhood. As stated, there's more in the New Testament. God is our Father. But of course, this doesn't mean that it wasn't taught in the Old Testament. Jesus more fully reveals to us God is our Father. And He says what? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So in other words, if you want to understand what God is like, Understand what Jesus is like. Because he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. One theologian says, it is in the face of the Son that we see the heart of the Father most fully revealed. In the face of the Son is where we see the Father or the heart of the Father most fully revealed. Now, we read earlier Psalms 103. Turn, turn with me to Psalms 103. This particular Psalms is called a Psalms of unmingled praise. Look at it. Notice what it says there in verse 13. As a father... Pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. So there, he's presenting himself. This psalm is presenting God as a father. A father who pities his children. Now, understand that he speaks of this pity, this compassion that a good father has on his children. He does whatever he needs to help a child in need, that which is best for him. Now look back at verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sin, nor punished us according to our iniquity. As I've asked many times, what do we all deserve? What do you deserve? And I deserve, as a result of our sin, punishment, right? We all deserve death. We all deserve everlasting hell. For the wages of sin is what? Death. But has God done that to us? Has God punished us according to our sins, according to our iniquity? You know, have you thought about this? Have you thought about just how many sins you commit every day? We have no idea how many sins we commit every day. We commit so many sins, we could not even keep up with them if God revealed all of them to us. They're sins of omission, they're sins of commission. But yet God has dealt with us not according to those sins that you and I have committed, but He's dealt with us as a loving Father is what this Psalms is telling us. And this gives us a picture of how loving, how caring our Heavenly Father is With his children. When they go astray, he doesn't write them off. I mean, have you got to the point, and it may be your children or or someone else, that you get so frustrated with them. 
You get so aggravated with their sin. You get so... Well, I'd say other words, but I'm going to go other words. Let's go on. That, that you want to write them off. You say, forget them. They are dead to me. I've had enough. God doesn't do that with His children. God never writes them off, but He seeks them with His everlasting love. Another Old Testament verse that reveals this to us is in Hosea chapter 11, verse 4. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their head, and I stooped and fed them. See, God was so very gracious to Israel. He did more for them than any nation under heaven and gave them more Blessed them. But what was their response? They sinned. They forsook Him. They went their own way. They turned against Him. But He didn't forget them. He showed loving kindness to them when they were young. Look at, look at verse um, 1. Of chapter 11 of Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. As they were put in Egypt, and they began to multiply in Egypt, God set His love on them. As His chosen people. Now, now why did God do that? Well, Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8 tells us. The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all people. But because the Lord loves you, and because He would keep the oath which He made to your forefathers, speaking of who? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh of Egypt. When they were a child, weak, helpless, foolish, ignorant, when they were outcast, God set His love on them and revealed His grace toward them and cared for them and even bore their rebellion. Now we, who are older, should often, and I'm not saying the younger shouldn't do this, but I'm saying we who are older should do this more often and have a better understanding of this. We should often reflect on God's goodness to us in our childhood. God, in other words, put up with a lot of foolishness. Right? Think back about your childhood, your teenage years, your young adulthood. God put up with a lot of foolishness. I hope you agree with me on that. I know He did in my life. I mean, we were great sinners. And God delivered Israel from the house of bondage. And likewise, God delivered us from our sinful bondage. He called them a son because His love in the beloved Son, who God loves eternally. He called us out of bondage and sin. He called us from the stronghold of Satan and set us free. He calls them into that glorious liberty of relationship as children. And He pledged to them 
a great favor upon them to send His only begotten Son into the world to bring them into the promised land. Now, the promised land that I'm talking about is that spiritual promised land that we are promised. And as He says there, He drew them with cords, with bands of love. It is God's work to draw poor souls to Himself. As the Scripture says, He sent His only begotten Son, and as a result of sending His only begotten Son, it says that none can come to the Father except He draws them. See, don't think that one day you just got smart enough that you were going to seek God. Don't think that one day you decided, well, I'll just put two and two together. I know that there's a heaven and a hell, and I don't want to go to hell, and I'd rather go to heaven, so therefore I'm going to see God. No, 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 no. That's not how it happened. God put a desire in your heart to where you begin to desire Him. There there was that drawing period in your life. And... If you're saved, you can look back and you can see it. That's what Pilgrim's Progress is being taught in in our ladies' Bible study. They meet this Thursday. If you want to join them and you haven't, join them. But that's what Pilgrim Progress, I mean, he's, he's woke up to that drawing process. And he says, I've got to flee this city. I've got to find life, eternal life. I've got to find it. Now, why did he have that desire? God put that desire in him. And there was that drawing to God. And he began to look. And remember what evangelist told him? He said, the book, the book, in other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ will set you free. Go to the light. The light, the gospel, go to Christ. That's what he was told. And remember when he comes to that mountain and he looks to Christ on the cross, that burden rolls off. That's when the drawing process comes to the being born again. And he becomes a child of God. So as Jesus says there, none can come to him except he draws him. Now, God didn't force him to worship him. God didn't force him to service him. God put a desire in his heart and his actions were loving and appealing and sweet and gentle so that he might be overwhelmed by the kindness and goodness and grace of God. And he was overwhelmed by it. Look again back back at Psalms 103, 14. For he knows... Our frame. He knows our being. And He remembers that we are but dust. You see that? We see that the Father pities those who fear Him. And those who are born again, who have received the spirit of adoption even though they still tremble with that reverent and holy and humble fear. Now how does His pity on them as a father work? Well, it does them good even as He disciplines them. Matthew Henry says, He pities His children that are weak in knowledge, and He instructs them. He pities them when they fall, and He lifts them up. He pities them when they sin, and when they repent, He forgives. Now why does He pity them? Well, that verse tells us there. For He knows our frame. We are but dust. In other words, what does he say? In reality, we're nothing. When do we become something? We become something when we're in Christ. And he loves us because Christ, we are in Christ. That's why he loves us. Because the righteousness of Christ covers us. 
And therefore, understanding that because we have come to Christ and our sins have been forgiven and we've been given the righteousness of Christ and that we're in the family of God, that we have been adopted as sons, even though we were weak and even though we were frail, He treated us with love and tender and compassion and drew us into Himself. Do you realize that's the only reason why Job could go through what he went through? I mean, none of us have ever experienced what Job experienced. But Job would not curse God. Why? Because he was in Christ. Because he knew who he was in Christ. And he could say, whatever you want to bring my way, God, I'll accept it. Because I know I'm nothing but dust. Nothing but dust. And I know what I deserved. And you saved me. See, he had the right mindset. We need the mindset of Job, folks. We need to understand who we are and without Christ who we are and with Christ who we are. A lot of people don't understand that. And as Christians, we must understand that, that as God's children, when we come to worship Him, that He allows us to come to His presence. Now, we often feel unworthy to come to His presence, and rightly so. We are. The only reason why we're worthy is because of Christ. And there are times that even when we come, we feel that we can't pray nor that God even hears our prayers. And we, and we may, even this morning, we may simply be going through the motions of worship and get nothing out of it because of our physical frame and our emotional weakness that we had to deal with this past week. I mean, Paul speaks about that there in Romans chapter 7. Sin that dwells in me. And this should be our greatest assurance to us that we are His children and that He hears His children when they pray. Even when we don't think that He hears, He hears because we're His children. And as our Father... He knows our frame. He knows that we are but death. But He is the very one who invites us to come into His presence. Though Satan doesn't want you to come into His presence. Satan doesn't want you to think of God in this way. Satan wants you to view God as only a judge. One who will punish you because of your sins. He doesn't want you to think of God who has sent His Savior to save you from your sin. He doesn't want you to see that you can be set free from the bondage of sin. He doesn't want you to cry out to God and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He doesn't want you to see God as a loving, compassionate Father who is ready to forgive any sinner and restore them. See, a person that understands that God is truly his Father, he reveals that he's God's elect. Do you understand what I'm saying there? A person that truly understands that God is his father reveals that he is God's elect. I mean, the one of one of the signs that God has chosen and called us is that there is a desire to talk to God. God put that desire there, as I mentioned earlier. God put a desire in your heart to commune with him, to commune with him through prayer. And let me add. I've never found in Scripture where God has ever turned anyone away who came to Him in true repentance and faith, saying to God, forgive me, Lord, help me, have mercy on me. Anyone that comes to God in that manner, God will forgive. God will save. God will make His child. 
For God is always ready to forgive, always ready to save sinners. When you come to Him in such a way, God will never reject you who come to Him seeking forgiveness by faith. This this is so evident in the parable of the prodigal son. I mean, think about that particular parable. This son rejected his father. Now, of course, the setting there is Jesus is teaching the Jews and it's dealing with the covenant, uh, being circumcised. So you're in the outward covenant, but, but not in the inward covenant. And this guy clearly reveals that he was not in the inward covenant. Why? Because he went and he lived a life of hell. He went and just about probably committed every sin that you can think of in his life. He rejected his father. He rejected his father's way. But when? He found himself in the pig pen. Thinking about eating the pig food. He came to his senses. Again, that was the work of grace in his life. His eyes were open. It says there in Luke 15, 17, but when he came to himself, I mean, what happened? What happened was he understood the goodness and the mercy and the compassion of his father. And therefore, he went to his father. He goes home. And Jesus uses this parable to show us what our Heavenly Father is like. He shows the Father looking, waiting for His Son to return. And when He sees His Son, what does He do? He does something that was not hardly ever done in that day, he scoops his robe up because you can't run in a robe. He scoops it up so his legs are showing. That was unheard of. And he runs. He runs to his son. And he braces him. This, this sinner, this this kid who had still the stench of sin on him, the stench of pig on him. And it says he embraced him with his loving arms and received him as his son. It says there in Luke 15, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Old Testament parallel passage, Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you And therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. God waits for his children come home. And He shows them grace. So every time we pray, we need to remember that we can say, Our Father who art in heaven. And by praying to God as Father, we remind ourselves of His tender, loving relationship that we have 
with him. Because of the work of Christ. He sent his only begotten son. He so loved the world. And he opened the way. And Jesus said, for I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to who? To the Father. But by me. So we relate to God as Father. Therefore, through Jesus Christ the Son, sharing in the Sonship. Through the adoption we receive through Christ, redeeming work for us personally. Thomas Watson says, A child of God delights to be in his Father's presence. He cannot wait or stay away from God for long. He sees the Sabbath day approaching and he rejoices. How many of us rejoice as we see the Sabbath day coming? Do we rejoice? I can't wait to worship God tomorrow on a Saturday. He says he rejoices to see the day approaching. His heart has been often melted and quickened in ordinance. He has tasted and the Lord is good. Therefore, he loves to be in his Father's presence. He cannot keep away from God long. Such as care not for ordinance cannot say, Our Father which is in heaven. Is God the Father of those who cannot endure to be in His presence? Well, of course, the answer to that is no. If there's not a longing... To be in the presence of God, then we have not been converted. Let me close with this last statement. One writer says, Since God is our Father, we will love to be near Him and to commune with Him in prayer. True believers love to get as near to God as they can. Did you hear that? True believers love to get as near God as they can. In the preached word, they draw close to His voice. In the Holy Supper, they sit at His table and feast upon Him I pray that that is our desire to draw close, to draw near to His voice, to commune with Him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your Son who has given us this prayer. I pray that we have a better understanding of this prayer even this morning. I pray that there is a desire in those who are your children, to love to be near you, to love to commune with you in prayer. Father, I pray that you might even stir this desire to where it would be a stronger to desire. That even as your people gather to pray, Father, that we would long to be with them to pray as the body of Christ. I pray, Father, for those that are here this morning that do not see 
that the preached word is what draws us closer to thee. That they do not have joy in looking forward to the approaching Sabbath and joy in their heart to be with God's people and under the preaching of the Word of God. I pray, Father, that you might put that desire in their heart and that they might see that you are a God that waits upon His children to repent and to come to Him through Jesus Christ. For He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through Him. May that be so. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.